O-levels now. Um, I did this, um, I've done this somewhere else and, uh, and uh, we broke twice in that place and I said, well, the next one is A-levels and someone said, well, I'm not coming back to that because I could never pass A-levels. It's not quite like that. Never mind. Um, the O-level, in a sense, is the normal Christian life. This is when you have a relationship with God um, and uh, you've uh, you dropped the kindergarten bit. You've dealt with it or you're going to smash it in the face every time it comes up and accuses you. So this is the normal Christian life and your relationship with God. And in this relationship, which goes from uh, verse 18 of, of Romans 8 onwards, uh, that we're looking at now, this is how it works out. Remember, we've gone over the verse, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. So let's set the perspective, says Paul. Um, we're wonderfully made. We have this wonderful relationship with God. Now let's get things in perspective. And as you know, this is one of the greatest chapters of the Bible. Um, I mean, at least it could take three hours on it, I suppose, but we haven't got that. So, first of all, um, um, the believer sorted out, deepened in faith, or deepening, I should say, in faith, love and hope. Now we have to face the world in which we live and in the body that we have. Edith Schaefer again, affliction is something we all have to deal with. There is no place to go on a vacation from the abnormality of the universe. This is the world we live in. This is the body we've got. Take it that as a starter. Um, however much we may influence the world and our bodies, that this is it. And we know that our bodies are mortal. And, um, and we know that in the world itself, there is a huge impact from sinful humanity. So this is what Paul deals with. If you look in verse 19, he speaks of the creation, uses the term four times here, so for him, there's no doubt about the fact that the world in which we live is not something that is purposeless um, or by sheer chance, but it is a universe with a purpose. And stunning in its complexity when we understand it, as he could never have done, the boiling planets and all the rest of it. When you look out on these vast, incredible oceans of stars and planets, has it ever occurred to you what a miracle it is that this planet and it's up to now the only planet. This planet uh, has a temperate climate that allows life to exist. Stunningly beautiful, amazing in its resources. It is an incredible place that we live in, this world, in the midst of this incredible universe. But, says Paul here, it's a flawed world. It's flawed by human sin. The rebellion, the cosmic dislocation is what Bishop Tom Wright calls it. Um, and um, so he goes on in verse 20 here about the frustrated universe. Verse 21, the decaying universe. Verse 22, groaning as a childbirth, uh, uh, as in childbirth. Verse 21, longing to be liberated. So we live in a world that is not what it ought to be by a very long chalk. The Bible puts that down to the fall, but even if you don't accept that, it's plain obvious that humanity is not only um, able to have creative abilities, which are totally amazing, but also the propensity to the most appalling evil and sin, as we're now seeing in our, in our lifetime in Syria and all the dreadful things that are going on. The same human being. It's incredible. But that's what we are. We, we have this freedom and it's this evil that has caused so much damage to the world. The Hitlers, the Stalins, the Maos and all the rest of it. Once, um, when I was in Manchester, um, a person who came, a lady who came regularly to the church, she said, you'll never get my husband to come to the church because um, of the First World War. And um, because of, uh, he was in the trenches and so on. So, uh, one day I went to visit her, it was in 1968. Um, I went to visit her and he was upstairs in the loo, he didn't hear me come. So he came out of the loo, it's kind of a simple house, and straight down the stairs, into, <laughs> straight into me, because I was at the bottom of the stairs, in the hallway. 
And he ran the record, I could have done it for him. He just said, oh, if you'd been in the trenches in the First World War, you wouldn't believe in God either. To which I said, look, I've been to the Imperial War Museum, I've, I've seen the reconstructions of all that went on and all the rest of it. I went outside to be sick. Why is it you think you should blame God for that and not man? Who caused the war? Man. So, it's nice to have a success story, but it is absolutely true. He came back to church the next week and he was with us for a year before he died. But for 50 years he had those earphones on. And it's interesting if you saw the television programme about um, uh, the bombing of Coventry uh, uh, and um, uh, about being in the Blitz a little while back. And they had this guy, and particularly when they did the Coventry bit. And being the BBC, they ran his comment beforehand that if you'd been in Coventry on that night, you wouldn't believe in God either. Then they got him saying it during his interview, and then they repeated it at the end. Typical BBC kick in the teeth. And to which you wanted to say, just a minute, who bombed Coventry? <laughs> you, know, you blame God, but this was human sin. And so much of the evil in the world comes from that. So we're in a fallen world. And frankly, we have to accept it. We can't alter the world particularly. We do what we can. And then humans, we are what we are. We are amazing beings. The Astronomer Royal is not a Christian. Professor... Um, Sir Martin Rees said this recently, the likelihood of a universe giving us life coming into existence by coincidence is one in billion of billions or even one in trillions of trillions. And yet you don't believe in God. It's unbelievable really. (laughs) It takes more faith to be an atheist, I think, than it does to be a Christian, quite honestly. I mean, to sort of think like that um, it was Fred Hoyle, the archetypal um, um, sort of humanist. Uh, he was uh, so against Christianity in every possible way. He discovered how carbon was created eventually. And the chances of it were, were what Reese was saying. The chances of billions of billions that the right stuff was at the right moment that gave us the carbon that enabled our bodies to be made. And he, he eventually said, him who fixed it. But he would never use the word God. <laughs> Um, but he did admit that. So we, we stand back with these amazing bodies that we are, but we are bodies, we are human bodies. We have, like animals, the, um, we share a lot of the DNA, but we have capacity to create and love and stand outside ourselves and make moral judgments because we're in the image of God. But our bodies are amazing. Uh, Colin, Dr. Colin, Colin Connolly, who lived just up the road from here in, um, in Cranley, uh, just died. He was an amazing person. And I, there's a wonderful quote from him in the book. Um, and I'll give you a bit of it. Each human body has more cells in it than there are stars in the universe. That's your body. This is your body I'm talking about. Your body too. <laughs> Though you're getting better. Your mum's decaying because she's over 20. <laughs> Each one is about 0.01 millimetres across. Each cell contains 2,000 mitochondria which are responsible for making energy at constant temperature for use in the body. Each mitochondrion depends on hundreds of chemical reactions facilitating electronic transfers, and if one system fails, then disease or disorder results. The human brain has about 100 billion nerve cells. Your, that's your brain, mate. <laughs> each, each cell is linked to 25 to 100,000 others. Synapses between cells constantly form and dissolve, weaken and strengthen in response to new experiences and learning. And so it goes on. The processing capacity of the brain is estimated at 2.5 million gigabytes. By chance? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. But because we're a living organism, things will go wrong. You can't stop it. It is part of being an organism. Um, and uh, this is the body that we have. So Dr. Professor Dr. Polkinghorne, a wonderful Christian uh, and scientist, he says the presence of cancer is neither a gratuitous horror or the product of creatorial incompetence. Big words, aren't they? I'll say it again. The presence of cancer is neither a gratuitous horror 
nor the product of creatorial incompetence. If you accept that, after one of these sessions, a person said, do you know, that's what released me. Once I accepted that, I saw things differently and faced my illness in a completely different way. This is the body I have. This is part of being human. Now let's get on with it. Uh, and that's where we need to be, really, as a Christian. So, um, it's, it's very thrilling, really. Um, I once spoke to a whole load of women leaders in America. And they were, in those days, compared with what we were over here at the time, highly painted and uh, decorated. Um, and there's a vast number of them, sort of hundreds of them, all dressed up. They were leaders all over America. And I said to them, I was expanding two Corinthians, my dears, you're all in irreversible decay. <laughs> they went, oh! <laughs> well, if you're over 21, you are. Some decay better than others. Um, <laughs> but the Bible emphasises, of course, that though our outward nature is fading away, our inward nature can be renewed every day. That's what it's all about, my friends. What happens to your body will be in a grave or in a crematorium. What happens to your soul should be heaven. And what matters most, your soul or your body? So, um, suffering's everywhere, but God is always with us. So our eyes are lifted in hope in this passage in 18 to 25. There's the glory ahead, the eager expectation, verse 21, the liberation from decay, verse 22, the whole creation groaning in childbirth, the redemption of our bodies, in hope we are saved. Wonderful to have hope. Johnny Erickson, many of you know, who was paralysed as a youngster, 21 or whatever, she's been an incredible witness ever since, ever since. But what she speaks to endless numbers of disabled people and she says, my darlings, you're, you and I are going to dance again. And, we're, and the, to the blind, you're going to see again. You know, we have redeemed bodies ahead of us uh, in this glorious hope of heaven. Um, we are so imperishable, but uh, raised imperishable. Remember from 1 Corinthians 15? Sown in dishonour, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown in physical, raised in spiritual. Isn't exciting, isn't it? Can't wait to know what it's like. Um, I don't have to wait too long. I am 86, so it um, shouldn't be too long now. But Dr. Gareth Tuckwell, who was the CEO of Burswood, um, uh, he went to the South Sudan, and when he came back, he said, the local Christian tribes people wear a skin of hope. I thought, boy, I wrote it down straight away. A skin of hope. What a phrase. A skin of hope. In spite of death, AIDS, hunger, war, rape and genocide. Yeah. Why? Because they got the faith there and they got the love there and they got the hope there and they were on those foundations right there in the southern Sudan. It's brilliant. It's so lovely to be a Christian, isn't it? I get excited. Um, and the Holy Spirit sustains us in verse 26 to 27. If you look at that, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groans and words that, cannot happen, um, that, that we cannot express. This is a marvellous thing, that there are times in suffering when you can't pray. If you have that, some of you have that here. I'm sure there have been moments when you feel, I can't pray. You've got to have somebody else, really, to do that for you. I had a serious uh, illness, an abscessed appendix that everything went... Oh, I nearly lost my life, really. Um, and uh, for the first two days after the operation, I felt like I couldn't pray at all. Um, it probably was the stuff they pumped into you, I don't know. And when the chaplain came round to give me communion, I sent him away. And I was a bishop. <laughs> um, but I couldn't. And so I thought, preach, a, preach to yourself. Um, hang on to one thing about God, which is what I want to say to other people. Think of one thing that really means something to you about God. And just keep that all day. And that's what I did. And the next day, I thought of something else that meant so much to me about God. And I held on to that. Third day, I felt as if he wrapped me in three great blankets of warmth and love. I cried. It was wonderful. Yes, the Holy Spirit can sustain us even when we can't pray. That's what it means to be in a relationship with God, the Spirit testifying in our spirit. It's wonderful really, isn't it, to be a Christian. Yeah, I keep saying it, but I, I get more excited as I go on. I, what I often say to people in hospital is, um, I often commend uh, Psalm 63, because it speaks about being awake in the night and, and all the rest of it, being restless. 
and then it says um, I cling to you um, and uh, you know often that's what we feel like we're just about clinging on to God do you know what I mean in, in, in difficulties you're just about clinging on but then the psalmist goes on but your right hand upholds me you think you idiot you think you're hanging on to him but he's underneath all the time holding you up the psalmist has got it we may feel we're clinging on but God is always there holding you up even though you don't, may not feel it it's a wonderful phrase and um, it's one that means a lot to me and has shared with a lot of people so this is part of the, the joy of um, there's lots of other things we might say but we'll have to get on to A-levels now for A-levels we go a bit further now it's not just a matter of the relationship between me and God it's how that can be turned by God into serving other people and blessing other people how it can be turned to witness and this is a major part of the question of suffering in the New Testament see where we've got to get to A-levels this turns the whole picture we started in the kindergarten with it all being for me we end with how this can be used to bless other people and that's very much Paul um, Francis Francis Schaeffer her husband said I must ask very gently how much thought does our identification with Christ provoke is it not true that our prayers for ourselves are almost entirely aimed at getting rid of the negative at any cost ring bells get rid of this illness get rid of this problem rather than praying that the negatives be faced in the proper attitude now that's the difference so Romans 8.28 again let's come back to that Romans 8 now this is a very famous verse 8.28 it gets quoted by all sorts of people totally out of context for those who love God all things work together um, some translations put for my good there's no my in the New Testament it's the good for those who are called according to his purpose now it's terribly misused if people say oh I found a parking place isn't that what the Bible says um, uh, uh, and um, this happened you know sun on holiday and all the rest of it um, it's awful misuse you know I just caught the train um, and that's what it says you know God does things for good for those who, uh, who love him but just a minute it's also for those who are called according to his purpose there's a bit more to it than this it's not just God being with you and, and although he does do some wonderful things for us so we are misusing it unless we see that it's in the context of suffering and you cannot rip it out of that suffering so you look to see what is the good it's not personal good please see this it's something to do with the purposes of God in your life the word purpose is in there as you can see and what is the purpose you read on after all that's what he wrote a letter he didn't just give a text out of context it is to be conformed to the image of his son to become more like Jesus so suddenly this text which is so abused is seen right in the middle of the suffering context that what God can do in this as we trust him and, and, and live with him and walk through this with him he can turn this purpose into our growth as a Christian you say does that come anywhere else yes it does listen to this again with Paul in Romans 5 it, I mean I preached on this in earlier days you are justified by faith that's terrific we're, we're thrilled with that aren't we you have peace with God yeah you have access into this grace in which we stand marvellous to be a Christian and we have hope of glory yeah wonderful more than that pardon more than that we rejoice in our suffering say just a minute Paul I didn't sign up to that I, mean, I don't mind the first bit but start adding this stuff about rejoicing in your sufferings it's a bit much says Paul knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us get it? this is what 828 is all about as well that in the very experience which must be true so many of you here you've grown in faith through suffering you've grown closer to God 
through suffering. You've come to depend on him in a way you've never done before. It was Solzhenitsyn who spoke about the gulag as a bed of rotting stones, but a veil of soul-making. Um, it was my friend who was uh, dealt with people in China for many years and met this chap who'd been brainwashed for 20 years in imprisonment and came out to say, before I went in, he said, I'm glad I was there, before I went in, um, you told me about Jesus, but for the last 20 years I've known him uh, with me in my cell. I know now it's not just something missionaries talk about. He is for real, for me. Because this is what often happens in the middle of suffering. And it draws us closer, like Johnny Erickson, who's now got cancer. Um, and people say, don't you want to grumble with God about that? And she goes on to say, no, I've learned more about Jesus as a result. This is A-level thinking, where we all ought to be. And I hope, of course, you all are. You're in, you're in Winston, and wherever it is we are. Uh, Wanish. Um and um, uh, Dame um, Cicely Saunders, who founded the um, hospice um, uh, movement, God uses the losses of our lives and of our deaths to give us himself. He travels with us through our pains and sorrows. These are all filled with his redeeming strength because he has suffered and died himself and did so with no more than the equipment of a man. And he rose again. The psalmist says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimages. They pass through the valley of suffering. They make it a place of springs. They make it a place of springs. They say, how can I pull this to be something purposeful for God? So I quote in the book um, the incident in the old hospital on the Farnham, Farnham Road. Um, I don't know what it is now. There is an old, old hospital that's there, isn't it? Uh, when John Skinner was vicar at St. Saviour's. And on one occasion he went, uh, went in to visit an elderly lady in the, in the, um, in the ward there. And when he went in, the first person he hit, um, or hit him almost, was, was a violent, foul-mouthed um, Navy, uh, merchant Navy man who swore at him about, you know, um, uh, why am I here? Why has this happened to me? Why has this happened to me? And went and went and went at him. And he had a very rough time with him, but eventually he, he went on down to the lady at the end, and, uh, and she said, why has this happened to me? But she meant it differently. What purpose has God got for me in this ward? And she started visiting people and going round as soon as she could, from bed to bed. In other words, it was a different question. Um, so the question then is, how can I turn this for God? Now, some of you may know, and I know a number of you know full well what happened in, in uh, St. Saviour's not so long ago um, with the young wife of um, a member of the church there with four children who was dying of cancer. And um, she amazingly, we talked an awful lot, and she read this book <laughs> cover to cover more than once, and we talked it through, and she really got hold of it. And she really radiated Christ in a, in a very, very special way. An amazing person right up to her death. It's an enormous privilege for me to, to be her minister uh, during it, as, as I was allowed to be, and at the funeral. But she longed for all, she was a member of all sorts of organisations. And at her funeral, do you remember it, those of you who were there? In this was the invitation to all her secular friends to a special alpha course laid on for them. This was in the brochure, in the service sheet. This invitation to come. That's what I mean by A-level. Even in her death, she wanted to turn it to witness for Christ and to bring people. Terrific. It was very moving. Very moving, wasn't it? You could still cry with it, really. So it was marvellous, really. Um, Michael Main, who was um, well-known to many, some people here, he... He suffered from ME and then from uh, terminal cancer. He wrote a book called um, uh, The Enduring Melody. And he took the idea of the cantus firmus of, of a Bach fugue, which is the same tune, keeping constant all the time. But you can do anything with it. You can go around it, decorate it, and all the rest of it. I don't understand it all, but, um, you know, um, that sort of thing. But, it's, but you never alter the cantus firmus. And for him, that was the love of God. The cantus firmus of the love of God. Yes, you may be suffering, and then it may be better, then you can have other things, then times when it's not there, but that doesn't alter. That doesn't alter. That doesn't alter. And it's that wonderful truth, um, so that, um, you know, if you, if you feel miserable, you read Lamentations, 
And, when you, and suddenly, like a, a pyrotechnic display on a dark night, you come to chapter 3 and verse 23, and then boom, out of the darkness comes, new every morning is your love, great is your faithfulness. And it's set in the darkest suffering because this person's got hold of the fact that this can't alter. That's A-level. It's um, seeing this as something uh, which is uh, a witness for God in so many different ways. And, and it's wonderful. Now, we can speak, I, if I, I haven't got time, but speak of all sorts of incidents that you can, I'm sure, in your life when God has particularly touched you. There are moments when you cannot possibly explain it by human means that God did something special. It's just a touch of love something you didn't expect, something that really works out. And these are lovely touches along the way, just to encourage us. doesn't mean he's going to solve every problem, but he loves to touch us and uh, pat us on the back and encourage us, as he does so often. I'd love to, to share some of those, but there isn't time because you need to have some questions, I think. Um, no, you can do without questions, but you know, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> um, but so... Um, what he comes to is the climax of this, of course, in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, notice what he does in verse 35. We all know this passage. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Notice what he doesn't say is, how shall we deal and get God to deliver us from trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? See the difference? Sorry, you're getting tired, so am I. Um, in other words, he accepts that this is part of life. Not asking God to deliver us from all these things that are inevitably going to affect our lives. But the question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? None of these things are going to separate us from the cantus firmus. None of them. That's going to remain even when we don't feel the love. Um, and often we have to be helpful as a church... Justin Welby, the Archbishop, uh, wrote the other day about the death of his first child. I, I put it down just now, and I'm not sure where I put it now, uh, probably early on. But he spoke about the way in which they dealt with the first um, tragedy in their own lives. But the second time, they couldn't cope with it, and they didn't feel with God, and they depended therefore on the church to carry them through that. And as often the church, it has to be that which carries us through and helps us take this great belief. So then, verse 37, know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's a wonderful truth, um, a glorious truth. Very often I'd love to speak on, on 2 Corinthians, and I'm time to do it now, but I, just, I think I might have referred this to you when I was um, doing the bit on, on prayer. But, but for me this is a wonderful, uh, again, a wonderful letter about suffering. And immediately... Um, uh, he starts with the God of compassion and mercy. It's a wonderful phrase he speaks of God. I wonder how often you've addressed God like that, as the God of all compassion and mercy. Um, it's a wonderful phrase. And then he speaks about, the about suffering, about the comfort God gives him. But the reason for this comfort is that he might learn how to comfort other people. It's immediately this idea that God does something for you. you, you how can you use it for other people? I take it between the difference between a junction... And a, and, and a Clapham, sort of a Waterloo and a Clapham Junction. The Waterloo when you only want it for your benefit. The Clapham Junction when you say, how can I use this to help other people? Um, and, and Paul understands that. And he goes on um, uh, with this whole question of witness and, and he speaks about what I've often called utterly butterly Christianity. Because he says, we are hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. All the buts. Why? Because of Christ. And the witnesses, we share the same things as other people. Because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you're going to be delivered from any illness any more than anybody else, necessarily. But how you handle it should be absolutely brilliantly different. Because you know Christ. And there's the but, 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 but. Not crushed, not driven to despair, not abandoned, not destroyed. So exciting, isn't it? And then, of course, there is the, the healing quest of 2 Corinthians 12 when he has the thorn in the flesh and he prays to God three times. It doesn't tell us how he did it, whether it was every week, every month, for years. Fortunately, otherwise we'd be terribly legalistic. We'd say, unless you've done it, you won't get healed. Um, but he prayed three serious times with God and then God brought home to him the conviction that this was not going to be the way for him 
And, um, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Um, and this is his answer, God's answer. And speaking on this once, um, um, when I was speaking on a cruise thing, um, someone came up to me and said, I suppose Paul said after that, well, I'll have to put up with it then. I said, oh, do read the Bible, man. Do read the Bible. Because he then says, well, I rejoice in that, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution and difficulties, for when I'm weak, I'm strong. In other words, if this is going to be the way, let me use it for Christ and his glory. That's A-level thinking. It takes us a long way down the line and um, much nearer where the Bible is and transforms us from kindergarten thinking altogether. There is graduate thinking, but we're not going to take that. But the gra- well, I'll tell you what it is. The graduate level is, is sharing the sufferings of Christ flowing over into our lives, wanting to know the fellowship of suffering, uh, of sharing in Christ's suffering, and rejoicing that we share in the sufferings of Christ. They're all biblical phrases. What do they mean? It takes some meditating. But that's the deep level of sharing the one who died for us on the cross, suffering for us and for our salvation. So, I'm convinced, he says, verse 38, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, you know this passage, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To which we can only say, wow, amen and hallelujah, and get out of the kindergarten. Michael, thank you very much. And we've, it's perfect. Yes. Uh, with, with your usual passion uh, to take a, what could be a, a, an overwhelming subject uh, full of pain and sorrow uh, and to turn it into something beautiful, uh, <laughs> melodic and, 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 and so exciting. Um, as ever, uh, and brilliant on time uh, also, so we've got 15 minutes or so for, for questions if <coughs> I um, haven't quite reached a level yet oh good, I mean elementary I understand, well from one of the gospels um, when Christ was suffering on the cross he looked up at God and said why hast thou forsaken me mm. Now this is God, man on earth, saying that to his father. I'm trying to keep my words, but you infer that we should really be doing this, this questioning. That's my Bible then. No, um, you're quite right about that, but you've got to be a little careful. Where else is it in the New Testament? It's the only place. In the Old Testament, those are the questions that are often asked. He quotes an Old Testament passage, Psalm 22, as you know, and he he shared that sheer desolation of what it's like to be uh, away from God for our sakes. So he's he's echoing something which was very much Old Testament and very much the experience of not not being related to God at that point. We can never understand the depth of that. Uh, Only in heaven will we. But the important thing, uh, says he, trying to find it quite clear. It just seemed a, a, an anomaly. And I think when Christ was in the garden, didn't it? Uh, yes. A similar situation yes. there. Absolutely. And he said, uh, but then he said, if, if, uh, if this is your will, you know, I will do, I will accept the cup. And, and this is the humanity of it. We are bound to say this to God, you know. We're bound to, to there's nothing wrong in sharing our feelings with God. But don't kick him in the teeth and get rid of him because he alone can help you. People who reject God because of this are rejecting the one who could actually help them in it. You're making the situation worse, right? aren't you? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, there's no and so I'm... Well, what I wanted to say to you is that um, at the end of that Psalm 22, it goes into great hope and confidence. And the important thing is to understand he's quoting a psalm that moves from that sense of being despised and afflicted um, and says, and the poor will eat and be satisfied, those who seek the Lord will praise him, Uh, may your hearts live forever. 
um, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, etc. Um, they will proclaim his righteousness uh, to a people yet unborn, etc. So it moves into a completely different mood. It's very real. I think it's wonderful that our Lord was like that and shared that for us in his depth of... I don't think we shall ever know that if you know Christ. We shall never go through that experience. There's God in this world. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Good, good question. Thank you. He sent this question to me to ask. He said, um, Archbishop Tutu is suffering now. He's dying of cancer. And up till now, he said he didn't believe his sister dying. But now he's coming round to thinking that assisted dying might be the best way. So how would we get this view in with I don't honestly think it's uh, much of a biblical guide on it really um, but we take the principle of the sanctity of life but it's easy to say about the sanctity of life when you're not in a terrible condition and uh, when the last thing you want to do is live and I think it's an issue that we've got to sort out but to go, it, we can't go all the hog but we've got to go some of the way in compassion to meeting uh, where people are in this situation um, and I think we've got some serious thinking to do. The trouble is being pushed by the lobby that wants it to become a sort of open do and you know, go off to Dignitas and all the rest of it. Uh, but the compassion, uh, I believe, is, is extremely... I mean, someone like John Stott uh, longed to die. Um, you know, um, he got to the point where um, he couldn't stand or move and you get to that point where you feel, can I not go home? Um, I think there are different games, really. I mean, I think... Um, uh, with my own wife, um, you know, they, they said there's really sort of no hope. What do you want us to open her up and all the rest of it? And they said, and she had said, I don't want to be opened up. And so we went on to the Liverpool pathway, which was beautifully executed and um, gave her a most wonderful death. Now that's within the law. Besides, it's still in the law. It was then. It was a beautiful way. She was relieved from what was going to happen otherwise. Um, I can't see why we can't uh, well that is happening all over the place the question is how do you make a law over individual cases I think this is the problem isn't it it's a big question isn't it and I don't think I don't honestly think that God would, wants us to, to be in that state really uh, it's the same question it's very difficult over Alzheimer's and so on with people and the, the tragedy of that and yet you know, one of my friends is a bishop and um, he's got Alzheimer's the one thing he comes alive with is the Bible and prayer. And each morning they read the daily reading and he comments on it. And when they pray, he prays beautifully. The rest of the time, don't really know where he is. But you know, his spirit is still there <coughs> and alive. It's a bit, I think they're very difficult situations. What we've got to be immensely careful about is any law that, that becomes a widespread acceptance that if I want to die... All I've got to do is die, get, get done. But people in tragic, awful, physical situations I have every sympathy with. Although you'll read in the book, or you probably read the book already, but you'll know in the book that... Um, um, what's his name now? He has um, motor neurone disease. And um, I quote him in the book, and his own book called The Donkey Body, uh, which he wrote, My Donkey Body. He fighting hard against any form of ending life. He, he's in the lead of, uh, if he's still alive, he's been in the lead of, of, of objecting to the, the idea of this. So, and he comes from that situation with MND. <laughs> well, I think, can I ask, you, you, meant, you touched uh, briefly on a personal circumstance where mm. you were close to death and suffering. Mm. Uh, and you felt that you, uh, in those immediate days afterwards, you could not approach God, or you mm. didn't feel close yeah. to God. Yeah. What were the stages that you felt? I mean, because we all we all suffer in our own way, but um, perhaps not quite so keenly as, as that. But what helped you get back onto the path? I think just holding on to God, really. It was, um, it was two days. And I think, you know, you're full of morphine and all sorts of other things, really. It had been a serious near-death operation, really. 
but it had been for nine days and then when the adventure thing happened I was actually on my own it was a bank holiday um, I was still bishop at the time no one could get access into the house um, it was impossible to be got hold of I mean I could have died um, and, uh, and in fact after they'd done the operation they couldn't, couldn't find the appendix um, because it was so abscessed in, inside so I then had an appointment for three months later preach on Sunday, have your appendix out on Monday um, but the actual operation was serious and uh, so I, I just couldn't face, I couldn't even face I held on, as I said, each day and the next day all I knew was that God just surrounded me no one did anything else uh, but uh, other people I know, they've gone through that blackness for weeks and months um, and found it very difficult um, but you need to help someone just come that can hold on to that cantus firmus that cantus firmus, it's a wonderful phrase I think um, of, of the love of God mm. Oh, you're kidding when you're a bishop lots of people pray for <laughs> in fact the whole of you know the one thing that worried me when I left all souls laying in place in the last because it was announced publicly without the church knowing beforehand it was in the press and that evening was the church prayer gathering when it's a big church there was two or three hundred people there I cried my eyes out um, because I felt I'm going from a supportive congregation uh, where there's real prayer, where we know what prayer is uh, and you're not going to be a member of a church which I wasn't for 14 years so who's going to pray? well the church went on praying but also I realised that a huge number of people began with great affection and love to pray for me in the diocese and only by that reason I think I survived spiritually uh, throughout the 14 years and ensuring against all the odds that I had time alone with God and didn't have to go through all the paraphernalia of liturgy every morning. Yes. Michael, I know that you deal with it in the book, but could you just say a few words about the validity of praying for healing in people? Yes, I think, um, thank you very much. Well, I believe that um, the... Um, 1 Corinthians 12 passage is, is to my mind the best guideline See, it, it, what often happens in teaching about healing is to say well Jesus healed all these people in the New Testament therefore he said we could do better things than him therefore we ought to be able to heal everybody it sounds okay but when you actually examine the New Testament you'll find that most of the healings were before he declared who he was at Caesarea Philippi and John calls them signs of who he is and so often the healing art that he is the son of God and just like the other things he did um, in feeding 5,000 and all the rest of it these were signs of who he was trouble was the crowds wanted to follow him for the bread not for the word and so eventually um, when it comes to the point where they declare him to be the son of God the disciples he then basically withdraws um, a huge amount to teach them and to build them up to do what we've been talking about to deepen their faith, to deepen their love. He does exactly that with the disciples, to prepare them for what is going to be the suffering they're going to hit uh, when he goes. So in the second half, there are very few um, mentions of healings. There are some, but um, three or four, something like that, it's not very much. Um, and the, the emphasis comes off towards the cross. It moves from who he is, where the miracles have been particularly part of that, to what he's come to do it doesn't rule out miracles um, and they are there in the acts and through history and we've known people we've prayed for and have been healed in a remarkable way uh, but there's no I mean there, there was many times for instance in Capernaum right at the beginning he heals people when he gets there they, they let the guy down through the roof and all the rest of it then he goes up the mountain all the people then come in great crowds him to heal them, he goes off elsewhere to other cities, he doesn't go to them and it's not that he healed everybody, he didn't but he healed in different places and, and showed his power as the son of God and I believe uh, with all my heart that when we come to God that the, the falsity of teaching is that 
people are so destroyed by it that this is what concerns me. And sometimes all you can hear about, as soon as a person has it, everybody prays for this, but when are they praying for their spirit? So if I'm, if I'm facing someone, if I'm facing illness myself, or I'm praying for you, Shia, for instance, um, if you're ill or anything, I would pray for God's hand to be upon you, for God to touch you in his love, to sustain your spirit, to touch you, if he will, in your body, um, to enable you to walk with him through this experience, uh, whatever is the result. That's what I would pray. That I don't think in any way minimizes. People say that isn't faith. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And um, I quote in the book, the Swiss healer, Zweiler was his name. Um, it was in the book. I quote it in the book anyhow. <laughs> um, sorry not to just to recall it at the moment. He was a famous guy. He, he, he had an illness himself all his life. But through him, endless numbers of people were healed. But he always prayed this. He prayed, he laid hands on them and said, excuse me doing this to you. I've got clean hands. <laughs> he used to pray, uh, Lord, if it, uh, if it is uh, your will, uh, bless this, your servant, and grant them the healing uh, of your hand upon their body uh, and their spirit, etc. Phrases like that. And then he said, but if it is not your will that they should be healed, then give them the courage to hold their illness and use it for your glory. He prayed both. Now, some of the keen healing guys would say, that's lack of faith. They say, no, it's not. That's the greatest faith, because it trusts that our purposes of life are bigger than ourselves. And if God is going to glorify himself more through our suffering and our witness, then all be it to his glory. Give me grace to do this. that help? Thank you. Yes, it's blunt language in the translation of the New yes. Testament Greek. Do you know your Greek? No. <laughs> well, first, first of all, um, let's say one of the reasons for this is that the church should be always praying. When people are ill, it's part of the prayer responsibility of a church uh, to pray for them and to lay hands on them. So the only reason that they've gone to the bedside is that the person is too ill to come to the church. That's the first thing we have to say about it, because I have a friend who nipped into bed to get the elders to come and visit them and uh, heal them, <laughs> believing that passage to be, that's what it said. So only if they were in bed at home would the elders come and lay hands on them. So it's a little difficult to get it wrong. Um, sorry. No, I'm, I'll come back to you once I get my hands around the passage. The, the, I don't know if I deal with it in the book or not, do I? The difficulty is that it isn't as simple as you think it is. <laughs> um, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith, now this is the NIV version, will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up. But in fact, the person well is not about sickness. It's about wholeness. And the health may well be, and definitely likely to be, the health of the spirit of the person. And raising him up, can you can, if you want it, you can make it say, they're going to get better and get out of bed. Or you can say, they're going to raise their spirits. And the Greek is much more likely the latter than the first. And it's an extraordinary thing, that because it, it confuses terms, because it says, therefore, confess... Um, they confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Um, again, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I really need to give you more time on this. Um, but again, it's a mixture of words. Uh, what I want to say is that this is part of the fellowship of the church to pray for people. And part of the fellowship of the church is that people's spirits will be raised even if their body is not healed. And our love should be very much that. And we should be praying for one another in that way. So that when you have a friend who's sick, you just don't pray, Lord, stop their cancer. You're going to pray, Lord, be with them and encourage them. And if it be your will, to touch them um, over the cancer and to give them healing. But you particularly want to pray for their spirit. 
because that's what's going to go to eternity. Which is why I like the authorised version, which says, "The will save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up." Yes, it saved the sick. You see, and and some um, I used that once over a lady who was pretty strict in my church in Manchester. Said, "I don't want saving. I'm saved already." <laughs> Michael, thank you very much indeed uh, for taking questions as well. I mean, just before sevens, we won't uh, we won't sing again. But you've, I think you've touched all of us uh, this evening and helped us enormously. Um, and particularly in, in my mind, what I'll take away is that it is that difference between the the passing of the world and the enduring uh, nature of God. It reminds me of Marion's father, actually. Uh, who was a uh, London City missioner. He was very ill in hospital and um, he, he does terribly bad jokes, so forgive mm-hmm. me in advance. Uh, he was lying v- very near death uh, and a nurse came to him and said, can I give you another pill? You look as though you need it. To which his answer was, your pill will not endure. Let me offer you the gospel. And even in his moment of need, he saw well done for him. Yes. the need yes. in other people. Well done for him. Uh, so, you know, no, bless you yeah. for coming. Thank you so much for sharing with us. I need, to to d- yeah, I need just to warn you, if you, I don't know whether you're going to get the book or not, but um, a lot of people do and give it to other people. Um, I don't make profit out of it, so don't worry about it. Um, I just long people to get to grips with this, because very rarely do churches tackle the question of suffering. Very rarely indeed. And um, of course I've had a huge number of comments from people about it. Uh, but it isn't in the pattern I've done here. I thought of this pattern later, which is a, I think a very helpful pattern, the kindergarten upwards pattern. Um, but it works on presenting like this. But I didn't think of it before I wrote the book. So the book is in two halves. You do need to read the whole bit by bit, chapter by chapter. Pete. And there are plenty of copies at the back. We seem to have someone collecting money already. Thank you can do it for five quid. Uh, there are five or each. Michael, did you want to finish your Father, we thank you that you are the Lord of compassion and mercy. We thank you for that wonderful phrase of Paul's. And we pray that we may be people who so trust you and so love you um, and are so indwelt with your hope that whatever circumstances we have to face in life, we may do so with you, for you, and to your glory. Thank you for the life you've given us. Thank you for bringing us to yourself and giving us salvation. Thank you for the benefits of being in a church family and of growing. Help us to be more faithful witnesses to your love in all the circumstances of life. So we send one another out, thanking you for your blessings and looking forward to further service and living for you. In Jesus' name, Amen.